Right. <clears throat> I'll just put this on silent here. Well, I am delighted to say that joining me on the Godcast today is Paul Coyer. Now, Paul is one of those faces that you just recognise. As soon as Paul popped up on the screen, I knew I was talking to Paul Coyer. Now, Paul is a TV presenter, continuity announcer, works in radio, has got a really interesting history and story to tell. So, Paul, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the Godcast. How are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm great, Alex. Thank you very much. And thanks for taking an interest. I just hope that for the next however long, I don't bore you to tears. <laughs> Shall so I just make things up and make me sound exciting? Uh, you know, now that I've left MI5. <laughs> so where, where in the world are you, Paul? Where, where, where are we catching up from with you today from? I'm, uh, I live right beside Wimbledon, between Kingston and Wimbledon in southwest London. Yeah. And uh, I'll get the standard Godcast question out of the way. Have, have you ever been to Burnley, Paul? Have you been up these parts before? Where? Burnley? Burnley, yes. Burn, uh, Burn, which country is that in? Where is it? <laughs> I've like never been north of Harrods, never mind Burnley. No, um, a, I've never, I've been up that way, but I've never had to come to Burnley for work or anything like that. So no, are, are the streets paved with gold? What's it like? Does it look like it? <laughs> oh, you've got a very interesting bookshelf. <laughs> yeah, well, it is actually. I've got my Johnny Marr book up there next to Morrissey, hoping that one oh, day, yeah. there might, hoping that one day there might be a reunion. But I'm not, I'm not hopeful. Well, you never know. What you cannot see unless I can swing this around a wee bit. Uh, oh, 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 all right. The top for of those who are watching, Paul's just scanning his camera. He's got some. Discs. Oh, I beg your pardon. So yeah, for those who are listening, yeah. there's oh, there's the Smiths album there yeah, um, yeah. right beside the signed picture of Al Pacino at the top and it's signed by Morrissey and really? all the band when they were together yeah he came on a tv show I did once called Pebble Mill and uh, I fought tooth and nail to get him on and it turned out that his mum was a huge fan of the program so he came on and unfortunately my um I won't mention names but my co-presenter who was doing an item beforehand overran and so we only had two or three minutes, it was so embarrassing. And I did say to him afterwards, I said, I'm really sorry, what can I do? He said, no problem. The band loved the show and they asked me to give you this. And it was that signed copy of the Smiths album. Um, so yeah, it's so good to see you're a fan too. Yeah, I like the Smiths. I saw Morrissey live, um, incredible. Full of blokes throwing daffodils at him, uh, gladiolis, it was incredible. Yeah, he's, <laughs> when, when, he does go through some strange periods, whereas, a fan, it can't, you kind of think, well, is he taking the mickey here a bit? But 99% of the time, yeah, it's a great ride. Yeah, yeah. Paul, you're a Glasgow boy. Mm. Yeah, and I was. I noticed you went to a school that was quite, well, uh, I noticed a few famous people came out of that school. I noticed uh, Armando Anucci was there. Yeah. And, and, uh, uh, who, sorry? Tom Conti was on the list there as well, I think. There'd been a lot through the school. Um, the leader of the Halley Orchestra came from, from through the school. Um, uh, Armando Iannucci, who writes the, um, the Thick of It and Veep and did the David Copperfield film last year, he came through the school. Um, Sanjeev Kohli and his brother Hardeep Kohli, they came through the school. Th there were a lot of overachievers. I'm not one of them, but there were a lot of overachievers who came through the school. So it's it's a lot to live up to. 
Yeah. Were they were they happy memories for you, school? They were. My school was one of those schools where we were taught by Jesuit priests. And when you say that, people think, oh my goodness, you must have been wearing chains around your, your back and you know, flogging each other for fun before break. And it was nothing like that. They were brilliant. They were really supportive. Being Jesuits, Jesuits are the kind of academics of the Catholic Church. And so you had to have a certain level of academic prowess. And over and above that, if you didn't have that, you could get away with it if you were really good at sport. And quite a few of the guys who came through the school uh, represented Scotland in the rugby team. Quite a few of them are in the Scotland squad now. Um, so if you were either good academically or good at sport, you excelled. If you fell between the two, as I've discovered since leaving school, because they've got a great alumni um, link up where we all talk to each other and get together online, quite a few of them felt that they felt between the cracks. And I wasn't aware of that at the time. So mm. I think my school days were very happy, but probably too happy in that I didn't notice around me that some other people weren't quite so happy. Mm. And that uh, Jesuit kind of education, did, did that kind of, um, is that ingrained in you? Is that something you've taken on your journey through life or not? Yeah, I feel guilty for everything that goes on in the world. Absolutely. <laughs> it's all my fault. <laughs> Do you know, I was speaking, to even Holmes about this once and he um he was saying you know it's that catholic upbringing he said do you find that when you're speaking to somebody in a position of power and obviously Eamon myself journalists in general you have to interview politicians or the prime minister or whatever and he said do you feel sometimes when you meet somebody in power that you feel a bit kind of you're holding back a bit reticent I went yeah he said it's the Catholic upbringing. It's respect for the headmaster, respect for the priest. Uh, and I never thought about that, but Eamon was quite right with that. And I had a, a great time. I don't regret any of it. And the Jesuit motto, or one of the Jesuit mottos is, if you give me the boy, I will give you the man. So they will shape the boy into the man he's going to become. And their whole ethos is very much a caring one. It's very much a supportive one. It's very much now through the Alumni Association encouraged that, you know, everybody helps everyone out. There's a huge at the school, huge, and I wasn't aware of it at the time, um, uh, fund uh, for scholarships. They bring in children from, whether it's underprivileged backgrounds or people who are scholastically great but couldn't afford it otherwise. Uh, as well as we used to have to go out every day and do charity work. And I mean, every day you would either make some sort of commitment to something, or I remember with friends going to visit old folks, we adopted a pair every week and we'd take them food and they lived in a dreadful, dread, snow pulled down by a dreadful tenement in Glasgow. And I hated going into it, I must be honest, because not because it was dirty or strewn with rubbish or, or it's the smell, all those things were there, but just the sadness of seeing this old couple living in one room in squalor and then leaving. And that was them for another week. And that, that really stuck with me. And, you know, they give you the, the courage or the equipment to go back again the following week. And what do you need? Do you need food? Do you need this? Do you need errands running? So, yes, I think their lessons have stuck with me through life. Yeah. I hope they have. Yeah. It's a small world, Paul, because I was... Uh... Chatted to mate yours, Ross King, just a few days ago. He Good old Ross. And, he, and, he's doing fine since the operation now, isn't he? No. 
He looked all right. He had a funny walk. <laughs> but, uh, another guy you just mentioned. Yeah, we go way back. <laughs> Eamon Holmes was the first oh, yeah. person that came on. Was the first person that came on the Godcast, and uh, oh right, you know, and I was a bit nervous about chatting to celebs and famous people about faith, but but yeah, he he, he was quite open about his Catholic upbringing, and I think he kind of was suggesting he was a bit on the fence, but um, you know, once a Catholic, always a Catholic, that kind of thing, mm. and mm. Uh, yeah, I think it's um, it's very interesting to hear. But uh, Paul, can I just ask you because you were you were one of the forerunners of live telly. What's your take on? Uh, this kind of big flare-up in the news with uh, with uh, Piers Morgan and, and Meghan and Harry. Do you think it's gone a bit far, or do you think uh, the right decision was made, Piers walking away from uh, the breakfast television? It depends how many layers you dig down. I think when I saw it, when he flounced out the studio, I thought it was all set up, I must be honest, and I thought it was a publicity stunt. And I wouldn't have been surprised, because Piers... Has has formed for that kind of thing, and you either like him or loathe him. I think there's a limit to where that outrage every day, that opinionated outrage every day, takes you. I mean, he tweeted last week that the Breakfast Show had the highest ever ratings for Good Morning Britain. Great. So obviously they've got the ratings up, but there's still about half of what the nice, comfortable, kind of quaint BBC Breakfast Show on the other side's got. So. It doesn't go far enough to get enough people in. So what are you left with? If you're paying a lot of money to uh, a very good journalist who, whose shtick is outrage. So if that had been a stunt, I wouldn't have been surprised. But of course it wasn't. Now, if you're leading ITV and you get a call from Meghan Markle saying, look, I don't care what he says about me, but this isn't good for mental health of people who are challenged with mental health issues. You have to sit up and take notice. You have to think, well, we've got form in the contestants on things like Love Island and various reality shows. Um, we've owned up to the fact maybe we didn't support them enough. Some of them have had tragic results. Yeah. They've got an alliance with Mind, the mental health charity. So they have to do something about it. And if Piers Morgan doesn't want to apologize, they have to make a decision. Is this going to affect the, our listeners? Is it going to in some way compromise our stance on mental health. And they, I think, took the right decision. If Piers wanted to stay, he only had to apologize the next day. Now, the other layer when you go down under that is they're thinking, what is this going to do to the share price? Now, the share price has come down massively since all this happened. So there's all sorts of different levels at work here. And I think my Next Monday, we'll all have forgotten all about it. A lot have gone, and the share price will come back up. Yes. I think um, a little bit of controversy is good, isn't it, for viewing numbers? Can you ever, did that ever happen to you when you were doing Pebble Mill and such like? You know, did you ever find yourself <laughs> in the news of being upset someone no. or anything like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, often in the news, but not deliberately. Often it's just because I said something stupid uh, or something went wrong. We had, um, you know, I, I guessed on, I was given all the briefing notes and went to meet them in the green room and said, right, so over, we've got eight minutes live and we'll try and cover X, Y, and Z. And they'd look at me a bit confused and go, yeah. And then I get them on the studio floor, I remember once. And um, although the name was right, we'd got the wrong person completely. There was someone else who didn't have a clue what the heck I was talking about. So that would get in the papers. 
or if something went wrong on live telly, that would go in the papers. Yeah. Or if I was doing sketches with Michael Barrymore or Rowan Atkinson or whoever might be there, Frankie Howard, I did some stuff with, yeah. then they would send a photographer along. And yeah, so you'd get in the papers, all good profile for the programme, but never deliberately. I don't think we ever stunted once. There was no stunt, no. Yeah. And, and just going, let's go back a little bit. So, so you leave school and uh, you, 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 you went into radio. Is that right? Is that, is that hmm. your first, how did that come about? Was that, a, was, were you, a, was it just a love of music or, uh, or was it luck or was it absolutely intentional? Oh, well, anyone who tells you who's had a career as long as mine has been, if they don't mention luck, then they're not, you're not telling you the truth at all. My story very briefly was I, I was fascinated by music. I would disappear with headphones on and listen on the family stereo system while they were all watching telly. I was totally besotted with Aretha Franklin and everything she did. And I would practice talking. I would get the stylus and I'd put it on the record and I'd practice talking rubbish not that anything's changed, um, over the intro until she started singing, just to see if I could do what the DJs did on the radio. And um, I spoke to Gary Davis of Radio 1 about this. He came on my TV chat show once. And I said, do you know, when I was a kid, I said, I obviously knew I wanted to interview because I used to, while I was doing this, pick up a banana and talk into the banana as if it was a microphone. He said, I did the same. <laughs> so I think it's something in the DNA. Um so I left school and went to university. And while I was at uni, I got involved in student TV. And from there, I, I obviously had to try and supplement, you know, what money, I, small money I had. I took a, a weekend job in the local hotel and there was a mobile disco came in and the guy asked me to help out one night. And I just thought, this is what I'm made for. And we started getting various gigs, one of which was for a record company who were launching a new album in Glasgow. I went along and played the records. Guy came over to me and said, I'm from Radio Clyde, which is the local commercial radio station, which was huge. I mean, still is huge, but at the time it was the biggest outside London. Uh, he said, we like what you're doing. Would you like to send a demo tape? So I put a demo tape together, sent it in, got a letter, come and see me from the program controller straight away. I went in, I thought all my dreams had come true. And he just said, I wanted to remind myself of um, the face that's behind the worst demo tape I've ever heard. And he said, go and learn how to do it, you complete numpty. Uh, go and see if Hospital Radio will have you and then come back to me in six months. So I went to Hospital Radio, which is where I met Ross King and their big star at the time, who was just leaving to move into the BBC, was a guy called Ken Bruce, who's on Radio 2, of course. Yeah. And uh, they showed us the desk. In fact, the guy who showed me how to operate the desk, Charles Nove, now does a breakfast show on Scala Radio. And after six months, I sent a tape into Radio Clyde again, and they said, yeah, OK, we'll trust you with the overnight two till six show once a week. You can't do any damage there. But I did unfortunately. On my first show, I was so nervous. Uh, instead of dedicating a song to any um, insomniacs, insomniacs listening, I dedicated to any necrophiliacs listening. Totally out of panic. Oh and I thought that was the end of it. One show and I'm out. But thankfully, the programme controller was okay. He understood nerves. Yeah, it's interesting that because I was talking to 
Uh, did it? I love radio. I absolutely adore radio, listening to the radio. And, I, and, and I'm one of these that's not a very loyal. I, I like floating around. And I was talking to Ian Danter from yeah, yeah. Talk Sport, and he, he was telling a similar story how uh, he, he got into it. Somebody entrusted him with the overnight, and they just said, go and learn your craft. And also a guy called Joe Wilson, who's uh, local to BBC Radio Lancashire, and he was just saying it was just persistence that got me there. It was just kind of they said go away learn your craft come back and i kept coming back mm. and i got my break and um yeah but it's a, it's a wonderful platform isn't it radio do you still enjoy it as much now oh completely i absolutely love it i love it to death i just think once you've tried it you don't want to give it up ever i mean i love telly i love radio i love it at all um but there's something about radio where working with a very small thing telly you work with a big team You've got a producer, a director, a researcher, camera, floor manager, blah, 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 blah. With radio, it's myself, it's the producer. And if you're lucky, there'll be one other. If you're lucky at the moment, it's just two of us because of COVID. Now you can get more satisfaction out of that because whatever comes out on here is coming from two heads, not 22 heads. So I love it, I love it. Yeah. And is that that's with the BBC at the moment, is it Paul? Excuse me. Yeah. Um, I work for BBC Radio London, where I do kind of phone-in programmes, BBC Radio Berkshire, where I do a four-hour show on a Sunday breakfast, three hours of which is faith-based, and one hour is just anything I want. So we take a topic every week, whether it's the Golden Globes and interview stars from that or whatever. Yeah. And the great thing about doing the three-hour faith show, <clears throat> excuse me, is that the boss, when he asked me to do it, I said, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. It's it's going to, it's a ghetto and I'm going to be the Holy Joe and you blah, blah, blah. And he said, no, he said, just go at it like you would any other topic. If there were difficult questions to ask of the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Pope, ask them. Mm -hmm. Don't just sit back. And after a couple of months, he came to me, he said, you're still being too reverential. You're not challenging people and things. Mm -hmm. And And now having got that sorted. I love it. I really love it. Yeah. I, I was nervous about when I started this podcast. I didn't know if people would be happy to talk about faith. I was like, well, oh, they're just going to say no. But, and I don't know whether it's the collar, but people seem to be very, very happy to share, to share with me their, their experience of faith. And I enjoyed the, we have a, a Sunday morning faith program, which I enjoy immensely. I've, I've been on it a couple of times, but I, I, I think it's a real great platform. And it's one of the few platforms actually for for religion on the radio. So how did the how did the break into television come, Paul? I know you was it was it through doing some continuity work. Is that what happened? Yeah, I got into. I didn't know the job and continuity was coming up. I actually was doing a Saturday morning radio show for kids by this time, and one of the uh, local comedians who came in as a guest said to me, he said, oh, you should be doing telly. I said, how do I do that? And he said, wait and see. And about two weeks later, I got a phone call from the local TV station, STV. We would like you to come on the kids' cartoon show and guest to pick out the winners. We've had a lot of letters from people saying they want to see what you look like. I went, yeah, I'll do that. So I went on that. And it must have gone reasonably well because the program controller then got in touch with me about a month later and said, um, we're looking for somebody to do the continuity announcing. Would you like to do it? Now, continuity announcing then was not just 
introducing the programs, which we did in vision. It was reading the news lunchtime and, and the local news at night. It was voicing the adverts. So you would have a, a string of adverts. One might be for a shop. One might be for some sort of brand of tracksuits or something like that. You can't deliver them all the same. So some of them, you'd see there was a lot of words. So you'd have to go, have we done Robinson Street? Blah, 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 blah. And then the next one is relax and have a nice night's sleep. And, you think. and sometimes you could get those mixed up. You couldn't make any mistakes. You couldn't trip over the words because these people were paying a lot for these live adverts. Um, so it was a wonderful, wonderful teaching. And that's how I got in. And then they offered me my chat show a couple of years later. But I only discovered afterwards, after I'd done the cartoon show and got offered the continuity gig, that the comedian, when he said to me, don't worry, it will happen, had gone around all these neighbours and got them all to write letters to STV saying, we'd like to see Paul Coyer on the telly. Um, I, I was arrogant enough to think, oh, that's nice. People are doing that. But it was actually um, Clem. I owe him a huge, huge debt. That's is it, so, is it Clem? Clem. Yeah. Tell Clem. me. Tell me about that. What, what did? What did he do? do you said, no, well, that's what I'm saying. He he decided that I should be on the telly. So he went round all his relatives and neighbours. Yeah. And got them to write the letters. He he. He basically started a campaign without telling me. And I, my arrogance, thought it was just that my lovely listeners thought, oh, Paul sounds good, let's see what he looks like. It wasn't. It was Clem, because I threw doubt on him when he said, it's easy to get into telly. He, he wanted to prove it to me. You, you've done all right, because I asked my friends to rate my podcasts on iTunes, and none of them do. They're just like, <laughs> no, I, yeah, I will, but you never do. And then you, you, you were the first voice on Channel 4, is that right? That was That's right, I opened Channel 4, yeah. Gosh, was that was that quite nerve wracking, or, or was there a lot of prep for that, or was it? Were you quite relaxed about that? Was it just another job, or not? Um, no, I certainly wasn't relaxed. Uh, no, I mean, I've since been the first voice on a couple of TV stations because now we've got hundreds of them. <clears throat> At the time, this was only the fourth one in Britain, and um, it was the first ever that was um, going to be a commercial station which was networked because the ITV ones, all the local commercial stations opted out to do their own programs and their own uh, commercials. This was the first one that was networked. And I moved to London to do it for less than half the salary I was making in Scotland because I had my own chat show and radio show, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I was nerve wracked about that. Was I making the right decision, turning my back and all that up in Scotland? And then gradually the pressure built and we realized that had to be a success so no i was not relaxed about it but we did have a three-month lead up to it and we kind of knew what we were doing and when we launched the first program i introduced was countdown with richard whiteley which is still going today obviously sadly not without richard whiteley and we hadn't seen this program because it had been sent back so often for editing because they didn't think the tone was quite right for Channel 4. So um, the very first program that we saw was about the only one on the opening night, I think, apart from the news that I hadn't seen before. Yeah. But you have to remember, the building was full of journalists from around the world for this mega event, the launch of a new station. Before I went down and did the opening, 
I was interviewed by global press. It was such a big deal. And I could see everybody getting tagged into the champagne upstairs. I couldn't touch it. I had to go down with two other people and sit there and open the station. Yeah. It was very nerve wracking. Yeah. And also at the end of the night, they came up with this thing. Well, have you envisioned, Paul? The camera will be there. And you do, coming up tomorrow, we'll have blah, blah, blah. And then you lean over and we've got a candle made in the shape of the four logo and you just blow it out for the end of the night. I went, great. So we practiced it. And every time I blew it out, I blew the candle over and it fell off the top of this table that it was resting, a TV set. So when we had to do that live, I was terrified. So no, it wasn't relaxing at all. Yeah, I remember it. And and, and, and kids these days, they just don't realize do they, that we were, we were living off three channels for a long period. And then along came channel four and then channel yeah. five. And now here we are today in this digital world where it's, it's hundreds of channels. But yeah, so, yeah. So the, the, um, the decision to leave Scotland, although it was a nervous choice, it was a, the right choice, wasn't it? Because your career just blossomed from there and you headed into, into you know, you mentioned earlier Pebble Mill. That was a very popular show, wasn't it? Hugely popular. I was at Channel 4 and I had been promised I could present programmes and suddenly that wasn't on, on, on the agenda. Uh, we were allowed, as there were four of us as announcers, we were allowed to do a show a week in rotation, previewing what was coming up over the next week. Well, if you come from doing your own chat show, just sitting there introducing clips for half an hour every four weeks wasn't what I thought I wanted to do. And one of the announcers, Keith, brilliant guy, had been a producer at Radio 2, and he knew an agent, funnily enough, in the same street, Charlotte Street in London, and he said, I've got to introduce you to this agent. She's She's brilliant. Um, she's uh, Annika Rice's agent and she's fantastic. I went, oh, all right. And I'd met Annika because she was doing Treasure Hunt at the time. So I went along and met this woman and she said, yep, all right, leave it with me. Within the month, she phoned me and she said, BBC Pebble Mill are looking for someone to take the place of David Soul for the summer on this show that he does every summer called 6.55. It's called that because it went out at five to seven at night and they want to meet you. So I went up, met with them, got the gig, and I did that summer thinking that was it. I had obviously resigned from Channel 4 at this point. And then the editor said towards the end of that summer run, he said, would you like to stay in Birmingham? And have you had a good time? And how do you fancy presenting Pebble Mill at one? I went, yeah, because I used to watch it when I was at school. If I was off sick, it was iconic. All did. So I said, yeah. <laughs> Sorry? We all did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I thought, oh, I've got to have some of this. So I, I did. And just the happiest working time of my life. It was yeah. phenomenal. It was one of those, it was, it was kind of, it was kind of filmed in the reception area, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. The, was. That was quite a, you know, I mean, it was quite, um, when you think about it, it's quite a forward thinking show, wasn't it? With live TV. Uh, I remember the Owen Paul thing that pops up every so often. Oh. <laughs> which, yeah. Which makes me laugh. You know, he didn't, well, Owen credits Pebble Mill with getting him a top five hit because he said until then nobody was interested. It wasn't until it went viral that, you know, the sound hadn't worked and he couldn't hear anything and he was picking his nose while the cameras were on. Yeah. It wasn't until that happened that um, he got the hit out of it. No, he's very grateful for it. Plus, he told me recently, and when I say recently, within the past three or four months, he told me, and I didn't know this, that every time that clip is shown on any goofball type program around the world, and it's shown a lot, he gets a royalty check. Really? I don't. I was a BBC <laughs> employee. I don't get a penny. Ah. And he said, game, and, 
In perpetuity, <laughs> I know I've, I've got something wrong. In perpetuity, that money will go to his kids after he kicks a bucket. Yeah. Do you know so, what though? Just you, just you showed me that picture of the Smiths on the, on the wall. It kind of gosh. Hmm. Because I suppose it would have been a great, it was great for you to get guests, but it was a great platform for guests as well, wasn't it? I mean, because there wasn't mm. as many platforms, because there wasn't as many shows, live shows particularly. So so just give us a, a memory, Paul, who, who, which other superstars, not that there are many bigger than Morrissey, but who else came on, <laughs> on Pebble Mill? Well, at the time we'd have um, people like Duran Duran on, and you have to realise they were kind of the one direction of the day, except they wrote their own songs. Um, oh, so many heroes, film stars, Peter Cushing. I mean, you know, they've all passed away, but one thing I've done, and you mentioned Ross King, if Ross did it as well, we both decided that we didn't know how long our careers would last, so that as we went through and we met heroes, get them to sign. If you're talking to them about a book, get them to sign the book, get them to sign the album or whatever so that in our dotage, we can look back on it. So I have bookshelf stuff with books signed by people like Peter Cushing or Kenneth Williams or Frankie Howard or Raquel Welsh or Lord Snowden or Princess Anne or mm. whatever that uh, I've met over the years. Um, and obviously, you know, another upside of that is uh, traveling with a program like that. You travel to Seychelles. I went to Singapore, uh, America. I wish I could have kept that. I wish it was still on air, but uh, it was replaced by neighbors. So you judge whether that was the right decision or not. It was a complete catastrophe in my mind. If you could, <laughs> you've mentioned some great names there, Paul. If you could, if you could drag one back and sit them with you in your study there and have a brew and a chat with him. Who, who would you get down from the... From two, two of them, and they both passed away, and I dragged them back for different reasons. One of them, Peter Cushing, who I mentioned, because he was the loveliest of men, and I was interviewing him about his autobiography, and his autobiography stopped in the year before he and I chatted. And I said, oh, I noticed that you stopped your autobiography then. Why didn't you carry on through the year and bring it more up? He said, because that's the year my wife died. And as far as I'm concerned, that's where my life finished. There is nothing to add. I'm just marking time until I see her in heaven. And he wrote the most lovely inscription inside the book. Um, and this is, this is something, I'll tell you the other one in a minute, but the first person I ever interviewed when I was at hospital radio was Lionel Bart, the guy who wrote Oliver yeah. and wrote uh, many hits for Cliff Richard. Yeah. And I did the interview and I asked him to sign a photograph that I had of him that the record company had given me. And he took the pen, he took the photo and instead of just scribbling his name, he went, so you've asked me about me, you tell me about you now. And I said, oh, I'm at university and blah, blah. Yeah, but what do you want to do? I want to get into broadcasting. What do you want to, I want to do radio. And do you want to do interviews? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he inscribed it with a very personal message, wishing me well with everything that I wanted to get out of life. And Peter Cushing was exactly the same. It's such a personalized message. It's just, it's just wonderful. And I'd want to talk more about him. And if I could pluck him back, it's to see basically why he put his life on hold for his wife and was it worth it in the end after she died? You know, did he get what he wanted? The other person that I would hold back for completely different reasons uh, is a man who... How can I put it? Well, he's the most difficult interviewee I've ever had. Uh, Robert Mitchum. 
American film star. And I was flown out to the chateau of one of the um, Brandy Cognac people for the Cognac Festival, which was a festival dedicated to film noir. And so they were giving him a lifetime achievement for all his detective films. And we were, um, he was staying at the Martell family villa in this gorgeous acres and acres of parkland with lakes and things. And he was so ungrateful, not happy to be there. They'd sent his wife off with money to go shopping, but he didn't think that they'd sent her off with enough money. He didn't want to do the interview, didn't want to be in France, was doing it because he was getting paid a fee. Mm. Every answer he gave was yep or nope. And I'm not sure that I handled it perfectly in that I should have challenged him more instead of putting up with as much as I did. In the end, we put it out unedited to show what an idiot he was. And we got tremendous feedback saying, oh, you know, what an idiot, what an idiot, what an idiot. And what didn't Paul handle it well? Well, I didn't handle it well. I just didn't know what to do. Because every time I tried to interrupt you, do. And it was literally yip and nope for the whole interview. And I'd want him back now with the confidence I've got now just to say, do you know what? If you don't want to do it, don't do it. Don't waste my time. My time is not any less important than yours. Right. And certainly the Martell family who are putting you up here, why the heck can't you be grateful for the hospitality? Why can't you be grateful to the Cognac Film Festival for paying to fly you over from America? Yeah. Well, so great two different... Yeah, great. And I'll, and I'll certainly uh, learn that lesson. I've not had anybody as awkward as that, but if I do, I'll, <laughs> I shall think of Paul Coy and think, right, I'm not having this. <laughs> well, Michael Parkinson, um, we were at, at Lords watching cricket. Uh, being Scottish, I don't understand cricket, of course. Um, so he was explaining the rules. And there was somebody in the box who said to Michael Parkinson, who's your favourite person you've ever interviewed? And so he was very polite with him. And I said afterwards, how often do you get asked that? He said, oh, all the time, all the time, all the time. And I said, a far more interesting question is, who's the person you've actually hated interviewing the most? doesn't mean you hate the person, but you've hated the experience. And I mentioned uh, Robert Mitchell, and he said, oh, he said, you were lucky, you were recorded. I had him live for an hour-long program. And after 10 minutes, I've used up all the questions with yep and no answers. Mm. So I provoked him. You see, this is the thing. He had the courage to do this and the experience I didn't. He provoked him and he said to him, you just think you're a hard man, don't you? And Robert Mitchum looked him in the eye and said, the last person who said that to me, said it to me in a restaurant in New York. And Parkinson thought, great, we're off and running now. And I walked over to his table and I upended a fork under his chin. I banged him on the top of the head. The fork went into his mouth and I left him bleeding to death on the table. Parky thought, this is sensational. This is gold dust. But all that Parky said was, you're joking. And he went, yep. <laughs> Where'd you go after that? <laughs> That's great. That's a great story. I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. And then you, and then I was looking at this uh, this quiz show you did, Catchword, where you probably did almost as many episodes of was it Going for Gold in the eighties and nineties? I well, Going for Gold was on, I think, before we started. I um, I inherited it. It was running locally, hosted by Giles Brandreth, and for whatever reason, and I've I've never found out when it got accepted by the network. Giles wasn't available, couldn't do it, didn't want to do it, didn't need to do it, I don't know what. 
And so it totally, by luck again, here's that magic word again, luck, Pebble Mill at one had come to an end. And a marvellous man who was in charge of Pebble Mill, who was the controller there, phoned round on behalf of all the Pebble Mill presenters, phoned round the whole of the network saying, I've got a great bunch of presenters here. Get them a job. Use them. Because it's not fair that they've been taken off here. And coincidentally, BBC Scotland, who were making Catchword, were looking for a presenter. They asked to see me and I got the job. And I did eight years of it. Um, we would record six shows a day, three in the afternoon, three in the evening. And it was wonderful. And that was the glory days when people were quite happy to get a dictionary as their prize. They didn't want £100,000, or they probably did, but they were too polite to say. You come full circle, Paul, and you're back on the radio, and life's, life's good in Wimbledon. Do you, do you miss... Scotland, do you, do you head back up there often or not? Well, for obvious reasons, I can't head up to Scotland at the moment. Um, I do have family still up there, although my mum and dad sadly are no longer there, uh, no longer with us. So I do go up whenever I can. And often, in fact, the last time I was in Scotland before COVID struck, I was up giving a keynote speech at a conference and I love doing that. Got lots of friends up there. There's a sense of just relaxing, the shoulders coming down, just this is what, what I'm, I'm used to. But I have to be realistic. I, I, I've lived in London so long. My kids were born here. We've lived in the house that we're in for a long time. It's home. So I couldn't move back to Scotland, but I love going there. But again, going back to Ross, Ross and I have discussed this, that, you know, going home is brilliant. It really is. But it's a much smaller environment he can get lost in um, Hollywood. People don't know his business. I can get lost in London. Nobody knows my business. It's very difficult if you're in the media to get lost in Glasgow or Scotland even. Everyone tends to know your business. They don't, I don't mean that in a horrible way. It's just a fact. They all know your business. And there's a smaller pool of people in the media for the press to report on. So you're in the papers much more. And I would find that very strange or difficult or, I don't know, just, just weird to get used to that again. Mm. But I love Scotland. I love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. Me too. And I'll defend we, it forever. Yeah, we go, we go up every year. Well, in normal circumstances. We go up to the West Coast. I don't care where it is, anywhere on the West Coast. And, oh, it's beautiful. Very All happy. up there, Fort William and across oh, to the yeah. islands. Marvellous. Yeah. Yeah, well... Take me to take me to my retirement. That's where I'd like to be, maybe one day, or one of those really? Isla or something like that. But a nice oh. single malt. Which just yeah, yeah, I was going to say, it just happens to have a distillery. Yeah, funny you went for that, <laughs> Alex. Yeah. Paul, it's been really, really lovely going down memory lane with you, and and I'm really grateful for your time. And um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm deeply impressed with your Morrissey, uh, with your Smiths picture on the wall sign. <laughs> You know, if you, you know, if you ever want to send it down to Burnley as a gift, it would be very gratefully received in the yeah. village. I don't know how it would go down with the parishioners next to Jesus, but... Um... <laughs> well, do you know, the message often is quite the same. One thing before I go, on the faith show on the Sunday, the past year, we've done a local faith strand for 15 minutes with this same Baptist minister every week. And it's given me a whole new appreciation of what people like you, Alex, do. How you come up with a different topic for a sermon every week, how you don't repeat yourself, how you make it interesting and keep people involved and 
make them walk away from it thinking, oh, I feel better for that. Or, it's, you know, here's what I learned this week. I don't know. I genuinely don't know how you do it, but I'm full of admiration. Well oh, done. Thanks, Paul. That just makes me think if anybody put me on a radio show, I think I'd be the perfect kind of, you know, sleeping tablet. They'd be nodding <laughs> in no time. <laughs> Paul, thanks ever so much for your time, brother. We send our love from Lancashire. And if you ever do get north of, um, where was it you said? Harrods. Harrods. You're very welcome <laughs> for a cup of tea in Burnley. But uh, for now, I'll say thanks for joining us on the GOG. Godcast and, and goodbye. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks, Alex.